Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host, and I am so delighted with the guests that we have today. This is a special episode of the Becoming Your Best podcast series. It's episode number 400. Someone was telling me the other day, a professional in the podcast business, well, okay, my goodness, if this is number 400, you are in like the upper 5% of all podcasts anywhere. And I was a little surprised at that, but delighted. So glad that we have a little staying power. Let me tell you about our guest today. He is chairman and founder of the SinoSure Group, an alternative asset and wealth advisory firm. And from October 2017 through October 2021, Mr. Quarles was vice chairman of the Federal Reserve and serving as the system's first vice chairman for supervision charged with ensuring stability of the financial sector. And from December 2018 until December 2021, he also served as the chairman of the Financial Stability Board. It's a global body established after the great financial crisis to coordinate international efforts to ensure financial stability. And he was a key architect of the Fed's crisis response in March of 2020 and credited with maintaining the function of the United States and global financial systems as described in the book, Limitless and Trillion Dollar Triage. Welcome our guest today, Randall K. Quarles. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. I'm so delighted to have him. And before we get going, I'll just tell you a little bit more, and then we're going to jump right into this. It's going to go fast. We're always so honored to have you with us, our guests. We know that you have the spirit of working on being the very best that you can be. And the things that we're going to talk about, I promise you're going to get some golden nuggets today that will be helpful as you desire to do that as you're working on being a leader. And blessing other people's lives and making the world a better place. Earlier in his career, Randy was a longtime partner at the Carlisle Group. It's a leading global private equity firm. And before that, a partner at the international law firm of Davis Polk and Wardwell, where he was a co-head of their financial services practice. Randy's been a close advisor to every Republican Treasury Secretary for the last 35 years, including as Undersecretary of the Treasury in the Bush 43 administration. He's represented the United States in meetings of the Group of Seven, Group of 20, and Financial Stability Forum, 
and was also the U.S. Executive Director of the IMF. So a little full disclosure here, Brandy and I are cousins. (laughs) And so I have been looking forward to this as much as any podcast that I've done. So I know a lot about Randy and we have so many memories together. I remember when he was three and I was about nine, somewhere in that range, I was over watching Superman on television and Randy was reading newspapers by the fireplace. (laughs) So, you know, he's got all this knowledge. He really is spectacular and one of the uh, most special people I know. So, Randy, to jump into this today, please tell us a a little about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. Well, I grew up in a little town in northern Utah, and I would say I made what was in that little town the unusual decision to go to college in New York City. You know, I went to uh, Columbia in the mid-1970s, and that was a major turning point, I think, that opened up my eyes to new possibilities that I might not have thought of had I uh, remained in Utah. Then I graduated college. I went to law school in New Haven, Connecticut, went back to work in New York. As you said, I was a associate. I was a lawyer at a firm called Davis Polk and Wardwell and on my way to becoming a partner. And just the year that I would have become a partner, the U.S. Treasury was seeking to put together a team to respond to the savings and loan crisis. And I left the firm in order to work on that team, which was viewed as a, you know, a very unusual thing to do on the cusp of partnership. And that too, I think, was a turning point because, again, that opened up my mind to new possibilities. You can get very focused, particularly in a sort of intense environment like uh, one of the big New York law firms on the objective ahead of you. And by taking myself off that track and doing something different, that also opened up a whole set of other possibilities. And then, as you said, I was I, I left the a treasury, became a partner at the Carlisle Group in private equity, and then started my own firm, came back to Utah. Okay, well, that's good. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Thanks for that background. And Randy, what are some of your key lessons learned, professional lessons or personal, if you'd like, that have helped you and the organizations that you have led or been part of and leading them to be successful? And maybe an experience or two of how you learn those lessons. So I would say probably two. One related to personal development and one related to organizational success. And related to personal development, I sometimes phrase it as you have to be willing to let go of the brass ring. I described, you know, a career, which is very common for lawyers in New York, particularly, or investment bankers, professionals in uh, kind of intense organizations, to absolutely become absorbed in the quite absorbing challenge of those institutions and to close yourself off from other possibilities. You know, when I left uh, as an associate to go into the Bush 41 Treasury, for a couple of years, and then I came back to the firm, but that was viewed as eccentric. You are about to become a partner. Why would you do that? And the willingness to do that, again, opened up a lot of possibilities. Eight years later, in the Bush 43 Treasury, I was a partner by then, and they asked me to come back to the Treasury in more senior positions. And 
no one from my firm had ever left to go to the government in 40 years. It had once been a common thing to do, but it was just, why would you do that? No one does that. And that opened up a lot of possibilities, my willingness to do that. And I ended up not going back to the firm and going to one of the big private equity firms, Carlisle. And my, again, willingness to let go of the brass ring that was in front of me opened up new possibilities. I think the willingness to look beyond even the important and absorbing responsibilities you have currently and see what else might be out there is very important. So that's on the personal kind of development side. On the organizational success side, so there's a saying, it's a, maybe a bit of a cliche, but I found it to be very important. I've used it as a guide throughout my whole career. I used to think that it was a saying from the Ute Indians of the White Mountain Reservation, but some say it's an African saying. There's a senator who says that he made it up. <laughs> I think that it may actually have come from a temporary hire of the Hallmark Greeting Card Company in 1957, but it's faster alone, but farther together. And, you know, in organizations, that's, you know, that's definitely true. There are different types of effective people. There are some who sort of put together a team, a, a staff to execute their will. And there are others who put together a team to achieve an objective. And I think it's the latter that ultimately go farther. The first go faster, unquestionably, but the latter go farther. And an example of that was in the Bush 41 Treasury. The Treasury Secretary in those days, this is 35, 40 years ago, was a man named Nicholas Brady. He'd been the head of Dylan Reed, one of the New York investment banks, very close friend of the president, George H.W. Bush. His approach to his job was not, I've got some ideas that I need to put a staff together to execute. He spent the summer before he was actually appointed. He knew he was going to be appointed. He spent the summer before interviewing everyone he could to find out what are the main, what appear to be the main issues that the Treasury ought to address. He came up with three, the budget deal, you know, that became famous in 1989, addressing the third world debt crisis of the time and responding to the savings and loan crisis with reformed bank regulation. So he said those were the three things. And then instead of saying, and here's how I, Nick Brady, are going to address them, he put together teams for each of those subjects, each of those topics, to develop an answer. He didn't say, okay, now I'll figure out the answer. He said, I will get the best people together to develop answers to these three things. And when you look back in history, the Brady Treasury was probably the most successful treasury in any administration over the course of my life. And there have been some very successful treasury secretaries, very smart, very able. But that approach of, I'm not going to do this alone. I'm going to put together teams and we're going to do this together to achieve the objectives is, I think, for any organization, ultimately the most successful. Well, thank you for those insights. Those are terrific insights. If you had the chance to sit down with someone who was just joining your team, what would be one or two things that you would say to them about what it means to be a great team member? So I would say a couple of things. First, you have to be focused on the team as opposed to only what you're going to get out of the project or the objective or the association. You need to be more focused on what can I contribute as opposed to what will I obtain? I think that the 
You know, the another important element is work can be a joy. Contributing is a lot of hard work, but you need to be able to find the joy in uh, sort of very intently focusing on developing areas of expertise that will allow you to contribute at an even higher level in an organization. Sort of work hard at improving what you can best add to the team. And I think those are, too often, those are not focused on by folks in organizations. Oh, I love that that advice and that counsel. Now, this next question is one I've been itching to ask you. (laughs) You have seen from the inside how monetary policy is made, and it has such a big impact not only on every single one of us as citizens of the United States of America, but the entire world. So what happens inside the Federal Reserve? And should we have confidence that the Fed really understands how to address the monetary and financial problems we're facing? <laughs> the Fed is a, is a complex and sometimes obscure organization. I thought I understood it very well. A lot of my career leading up to my appointment at the Fed had involved close interaction with the Fed, both in the private sector and the public sector. My stints at the Treasury, my uh, investing practice was often in financial institutions. My law practice was representing financial institutions. I thought I knew the place. And after about 15 minutes inside, you realize, oh, no one knows this place if you aren't inside (laughs) of it, really. But it was also very gratifying. Uh, encouraging as a citizen to see how the decision-making process and the analysis of monetary policy went within the Federal Reserve. It is a joint decision. The monetary policy moves are decided by a committee of 19 people, really. 12 of them have a vote at any particular time. Again, it's a Rube Goldberg, very complex arrangement. There are 12 separate Federal Reserve banks around the country. Each of them has a president. There are seven governors of the overall system that sit in Washington. Those 19 people come together every six weeks and consider monetary policy. Five of the 12 Reserve Bank presidents have a vote at any one time. So it's all very complicated, but everybody discusses the issues in front of them. And the decision-making meeting every one of those six weeks kind of proceeds in a regular way. There's a discussion of everyone. Every, we go around the table and everyone discusses the economy. Then you go around the table and everyone discusses financial stability. Then you go around the table and everyone discusses what monetary policy ought to be in light of those previous discussions. It takes a couple of days to do all of that. As I say, you'd be really encouraged and gratified as a citizen to see how really non-political those discussions are. They're Smart people bringing together their input from all around the country. That's why the 12 Reserve Bank presidents participate. And the governors of the board in Washington have to be selected. They can't come from all of one place or one background. The law requires that they also have many different backgrounds. And so that you bring all of that input together to try to come up with the best decisions. And just as an example, again, of what I think was quite encouraging, probably my closest, I don't know if you'd say ally, but we thought most similarly about monetary policy. We would generally support each other in positions that we were taking was a fellow who's the president of the Reserve Bank of Atlanta named Rafael Bostic. Now, on paper, you would have said that Rafael and I had absolutely nothing 
in common. He was an official in the Obama administration. He was an assistant secretary of HUD. That was what he'd been before. He was a very skilled economist, had a, it was a Stanford PhD economist, but, you know, very liberal politics. Maybe the only overlap you would have imagined was that his husband came from a little town in central Utah. But on paper, you would have said, here is this conservative Mormon Republican, and here is this very liberal ex-Obama official. These people couldn't have anything in common. And we were side by side in the discussions about monetary policy all the time. And I was pleased when in the remarks when I was leaving the Fed, a section of his farewell was quoting Freud's interpretation of dreams, where he says, in the dream, opposites become one. The opposites are erased. And that exemplified our discussion over the time that we were at the Fed together. It's, it's a very good process that produces the best decisions possible for monetary policy. Oh, thank you for that background and inside view. Uh, we happened about six years ago, we were having a Corals reunion. My mom was a Corals and, and she and Randy's dad are brother and sister. And, and one of the things we do in our reunions, we have a 5K walk or run for some. So we were out walking, talking about the Federal Reserve and realize these are really smart, some of the smartest people anywhere, but they also vet and, and have give and take and hear others' opinions and they're open. And so when you're talking about raising interest rates or lowering it, I mean, they get it. And so it is encouraging. That was fun, Randy. <laughs> I'm always blown away by how fast everything goes in these uh, these interviews. Randy, what tips might you have? Because you've had a busy life. You have a wonderful family, beautiful wife, beautiful children. What are tips and and extended family as well? And Randy's so faithful in tending to our family at a large. What are tips you have on maintaining good health and balance in life, especially when there's so much going on? Well, I'd say two. Both of them are probably obvious, but uh, but they're hard to do. And I, I'm not a, a paragon of, of doing them either. But one is you really do have to focus and prioritize. You know, a, a w- woman whom I've long admired, Carla Hills, she was a cabinet secretary in uh, the Ford administration, I think, and the mother of a, uh, of a good friend of my wife's. But she as a woman in the 70s, fairly high-powered executive and a cabinet secretary, you know, she was still a mother. And she was a very good mother to uh, Laura. But she prioritized, look, I need to do these things. And she would schedule them, meeting with the president of the White House, 11 to 12, attend the soccer game, 12 to 1. That has to be on there. So you have to prioritize. Part of prioritization is being pretty rigorous about saying no to things and being pretty rigorous about scheduling to get a broad range of things done. You know, I have a practice where I schedule everything that I'm going to do. So it's not just a to-do list. It is, I put on the calendar, I have a to-do list. And then I say, well, this is what I can get done in a day. And these are the highest priority things. And then, so for that next day, it's, I begin in the morning and say, so this is how long this will take. This is how long this will take. And everything is on the calendar, as opposed to just trying to get random things done and interrupted by a phone call. And and people have grown used over the years to the fact that they'll rarely be able to call me 
and have me answer because I'm not doing that right then, but I will return their call promptly. Okay, I love it. That's excellent. Randy, what is your advice on how someone can become their best? It's something that you've tried to do throughout your whole life. I love the fact that you've let go of the brass ring or gold ring, whatever it is, (laughs) and taken on new opportunities, but you've responded to this feeling within you to become the very best that you could be. So uh, I'm just interested that uh, what advice can you have for people to, to do that? And then is one ever too old to become their best? I would go back to what I'd said before, becoming your best. If you're focused always on what can I contribute and how can I contribute more, you will, over the course of a career, discover that you are improving your your own abilities, you know, in probably the best way. And are you ever too old to become your best? So as you mentioned, you know, I'm the chairman of a firm that I started 10 years ago, an investment firm called Sinusure. At the time, I was a partner at the Carlisle Group, one of the absolute leading private equity firms in the country. And I was 56 years old. And that is a little, I probably should have realized how unusual that was. And maybe I wouldn't have done it if I'd really focused on it. But, you know, at the age of 56 to say, I'm going to start an entirely new firm when I am a partner at one of the great private equity firms. Yeah, I don't know that I'd recommend it to everybody, but it's been very successful. I've been really pleased with having done it, put together a great group of people that I work with. And I think that's just an example of, no, if you'd been analyzing that on paper, you would have said you are too old to start your own brand new investment firm. And certainly during this process, I've realized why people start firms when they're in their 30s and not in their late 50s. But it's been an absolutely terrific and expanding experience. And so, no, I don't think you're ever too old. I probably won't start one again. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I bet Randy's not done yet. (laughs) I happened to be in uh, our grandparents' home in Los Animas, Colorado. I don't know. I was probably 25, Randy. And I don't know how old I was, but I was reading. Maybe I was a little older, maybe 35, but our grandpa died about 85 years old. And I was reading some of his handwritten letters. One of them was about 10 or 12 pages, and it ended with this. He said, I don't know that I've really done any good in the world. Oh, I saw that, and I thought, well, we love our grandpa so much. I mean, he is such an inspiration to us. But all you have to do is look at the posterity and know that the good that he's done will never fully be known, but it's reached all over the planet. And Randy's a big part of that. And so don't underestimate yourselves to our wonderful listeners of your influence and reach. Our time is up today. And so I'd like to just finish with uh, this question. Any final tips that you could give our listeners today, Randy, that you think would be helpful? I guess the final tip I would say is always be willing to imagine something better and you're likely to achieve it. Oh, I love it. Well, that's great. Randy, how can people find out about you or Sinosure or learn more about you? 
Well, signagegroup.com has uh, backgrounds of the firm and all of us. I think if you Google me, there's a lot of information that, that, that you can get. So, Okay, great. Well, thank you, Randy Quarles, for being part of this show today. Thank you for a lifetime of blessing others for good, including me. I'm grateful for you. Thanks, Steve. That's great. Yeah, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a delight. And to all of our listeners, wherever you may be today, wishing you the very best. You're such an inspiration. This is Steve Schallenberger signing off from Becoming Your Best, the podcast series. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.